0: Uh, Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment? Of, of everything God might or might not want us to do, what's the most important thing that we need to do in order for God to be pleased? And his response, as many of you are aware, is, well, it's actually fairly simple. The first and most important commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Uh, It might have been heart, mind, and strength, you know, depending on your translation, but but with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, love the Lord your God with all that you are, this is the most important thing that you can possibly do. And it occurs to me that in order to do that, in order for you and I to love God, especially on that level, because like, you know, soul, mind, and strength, like that's serious commitment right there, Uh, it occurs to me that we might actually need to know God in order to do that. We might actually need to know some things about God in order to actually do that. And Pastor Rick, uh, speaking of the Bible, talking about the Bible, uh, you know, studies have found that the single most important factor in a person's spiritual development is the degree to which they engage the Bible. That's um, it's the most important factor. But you know what's interesting is that our view of God is shaped by so many other things. Have you noticed that everyone has an opinion about God? Uh, have you ever been in a situation, I, I will never forget this moment, it's just the most ridiculous thing I've maybe ever encountered, um, but I had this group of friends when I was in high school, and they were, you know, they were good guys, they didn't, they didn't get in trouble, they were good kids growing up, but for whatever reason, when we finished high school, they just became like the crazy party crowd, uh, it Was ultimately, it ended up sort of being the end of my relationship to that group of people, but, uh, but I remember this one particular guy, I was at his apartment, he was the first one of my friends to move out. And, uh, and I showed up there, and I don't know how much he had drinking at this point, but he was just a mess. Like, I walk in, and he immediately starts talking to me about the Bible. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, I get why people do that now, because I'm a pastor, and so they're like, oh, yeah, let's talk about God. You're the God guy. Uh, but back then, I wasn't, right? I was just Kelly back then. So, uh, so he immediately starts talking to me about God, and he says to me, you know, you might not believe this, but I'm actually a Christian, I was like, well, okay, I believe you. Uh, But what I realized was he had really sort of built this understanding based on a lot of things that weren't necessarily the scripture. So think about some of the things that might inform your view of God. Uh, One that is probably true for all of us is the opinion of people we respect. Uh, That person seems smart, they seem articulate, I believe what they say. They're probably right. Uh, That's a really common one, and that's actually in many ways a pretty reasonable way to learn, right? If someone seems like they know what they're talking about, it's possible that they do. Uh, another way that people inform their view about God is through, through dramatic or significant experiences. Uh, anybody go to youth camp when you were younger, right? Okay, I'm guessing that probably some things happened there that maybe you laugh about now, but that ultimately ended up being fairly significant in your life. Uh, I know that's true for me. Uh, But it also goes the other way, right? People can have a really traumatic or difficult or frustrating or hurtful experience. They can formulate opinions about God as well. Uh, Maybe they encounter some really difficult loss and they think, okay, God must be mean. He must be angry. Uh, People can go that direction also. Another way is just through the observation of the world. Have you ever thought to yourself when you're in solitude, maybe out in, you know, out in the mountains somewhere or maybe camping, sleeping in the dirt... I just really feel close to God when I'm in nature. Has that ever occurred to you? I know a lot of people do experience that. Just our observation of the world informs our view of God. Have you ever looked up at the stars in the sky when you were out there camping and sleeping in the dirt and thought, wow, the universe is really big? It's really complex. Therefore, God must be really big and complex. All kinds of things. All kinds of things can inform our view of God. Uh, Some of them are pretty reliable. Some of them are not so reliable. But the Bible really stands alone for this one reason because the Bible is God's personal self disclosure about himself to mankind. All of those other things, we're sort of filtering them through our own lens, but the Bible's right there in black and white. God has decided this is what I want to disclose and make clear about myself. And so it doesn't really change because my interpretation of nature could change depending on how I feel that day or, uh, you know, my interpretation of what this person has to say might just depend on if I like them or not. Uh, But the Bible stands alone because it's God's self-disclosure. But what I find is that our confusions and our doubts about God tend to creep in when we get away from the Bible as our primary source. And so, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. This week we had a huge, uh, pretty incredible, actually, natural disaster in Texas, right? If you've been paying attention to basically anything, you've probably seen, uh, seen that on the news. Hurricane Harvey, uh, pretty, pretty dramatic stuff, and really affected a lot of people. And some people will say, whenever there's a significant disaster, some people will say, I just don't believe in a God who would X, fill in the blank, whatever's there. Uh, destroy all, you know, all these people's lives. I don't believe in that God. Uh, and what I've found is that as I pursue that conversation a little bit farther and I find out about this God that they don't believe in, it usually turns out that I don't believe in that God either because it's coming from a place where they've formed this position on God from something other than the Scripture through their own lens. So what I want to do over the next couple weeks is I want to talk about a handful of just really foundational things Because I love to introduce those people to the God that I wish they knew. And that's what we've called the the series, The God I Wish You Knew. So that's what we're going to do over the next uh, next few weeks. Just talk about some really fundamental truths. So one of the most common descriptors you'll see in the Bible for God is Father. The word Father appears over and over throughout the scripture. Uh, Maybe most well-known is the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father in Heaven. If you've never read the Bible, but you've seen a mobster movie, you know the Lord's Prayer. Uh, our Father in Heaven is how, is how it begins. It was Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. And even the most recreational amateur therapist knows, as soon as the word Father gets introduced to the conversation, you're about to go somewhere important or interesting or maybe ridiculous or maybe terrifying. Uh, but the word Father is really significant in all of our lives. I thought this might be actually a good opportunity to like... Tell some childhood stories about my father and see if I could. Uh, but I decided not to do that because if you know my dad, you know he's a really nice guy and he doesn't deserve that. So, uh, plus I just don't really have that many like ridiculous stories about my dad. So, uh, but speaking of crazy therapists, uh, Sigmund Freud, the father of the troubled father of psychoanalysis, he actually said something that was very true and uh, and really interesting about this. He said. Psychoanalysis daily demonstrates to us how youthful persons lose their religious belief as soon as the authority of the Father breaks down. Isn't that interesting? As soon as the authority of the Father breaks down, other issues follow, including the loss of faith in God. But that might explain a few things that have been going on in our society over the last couple generations. When the authority of the Father breaks down, faith in God tends to break down. And I thought Gene Apple described the reason for it pretty well. He said, there's an unmistakable connection between love and provision. There's a connection there. In fact, if you are a father, you know that one of your greatest joys in life is to provide for your children. There's an unmistakable connection there. If you love someone, you take joy in meeting their needs. It's kind of bedrock of the idea of biblical love, giving yourself away for the other person. And it becomes really problematic in a society where the authority of the father is broken down. We start to have a lot of, a lot of new issues. So maybe for you, you know, maybe your dad was awesome. Maybe he was a rock star. Praise God for that. That's, that's incredible. But maybe he was absent or abusive. Or maybe just try as he might, he just wasn't very good at caring for the needs of other people. Uh, that happens because as it turns out, our dads are people. They're humans. They're they're doing the best they can just like the rest of us. So let me ask you this question. In your mind, is God a good father? Is he a good father? Maybe that's a no-brainer yes for you, but I want to tell you, for a lot of people, it's not. For a lot of people, it's not a no-brainer yes. A lot of people would say, "Mm, I'm not really sure. I don't really know. Some people would say, no, I don't think he is. But for yourself, can you decide, is God a good father? I'll ask you to even go a step farther. Can you have the faith today to believe, even if you haven't before, that God is a good father? Because he wants to be seen that way. And it's interesting because some people will object to that idea, uh, that God is a good father, because they'll say, well, if he's a good father, then why does he have all these rules, all these do's and don'ts, right? God just apparently wants to tell me what to do. Uh, some people kind of take that perspective. Honestly, I think that's mostly because we're Americans and we hold the value of the individual above everything. Uh, that hasn't really existed, you know, in history past. That's kind of a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, but some people will really object on that basis. You can't tell me what to do, right? Because my reality's mine and yours is yours. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever known a good father that didn't have any rules? Has that person ever existed? I, I don't think so. Uh, and you don't have to look very far in the scripture to figure it out. Take the first rule, commandment number one, have no other gods before me. I have that same rule in my house. Uh, it's not spoken, but there's an 84-year-old man across the street named Mr. Williams. He mows his lawn sometimes with suspenders and no shirt. It's pretty disturbing. Uh, but he's a really nice guy. <laughs> now, what would happen theoretically if I said to my children, hey, guys, it's time to go to bed, and they said, yeah, Mr. Williams said we don't have to. Basically, my response would be, you have no other dads before me. I would probably use use different verbiage, but I would say, Mr. Williams isn't your dad. I am. I mean, that's just rule number one. Literally, you could go right down the list of the rules, so to speak, the law that God established in Scripture, and apply the same principle. Every loving father has rules, because it turns out that the loving father sometimes knows better than the kids, no matter how self-assured they are, he knows better than them. And we see this in the Proverbs. If you've ever read through the Proverbs, you're just amazed by how wise Solomon is. The Bible tells us he's the wisest man who ever lived. And so God spoke to Solomon. God gave him this supernatural wisdom. And Solomon was wise enough to write it down and pass it on to his son. And this is what he said to his son in Proverbs 3, verse 1. He said, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years. And they will bring you peace and prosperity. God says, if you keep the rules, you will live long and prosper. It's literally what it says. You will live long and prosper. I know. I was probably a little bit too, uh, too far back for most of you. Uh, but Solomon, Solomon points out the reason for having the rules. So that you will live long and prosper. That's God's reason for having rules for us. And so I just want to take just a couple minutes... I want to go to Matthew chapter 6. It's in the middle of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, not a very clever sermon title, it's called that because Jesus was giving a sermon on the mountain. Uh, that would never work today in today's you know, era of marketing, but nonetheless, that's, that's what we know of it as. And Jesus is, uh, is there and he's teaching a, a pretty large group of people. And so, uh, you may have noticed this, Jesus lived during pretty stressful times, uh, not not terribly different in a lot of ways from today. You had uh, basically the Roman Empire pretty much conquering most of the known world and ruling over it. Uh, and so in his day, Israel was occupied by this foreign army. I mean, that, that's something, right? That's not nothing. That would be an unusual experience. You also had a huge gap between the rich and the poor. We have a pretty large middle class in our society, uh, but that also is a pretty new phenomenon. That really didn't exist before the last 100 to 200 years. So in Jesus' day, you had a few people who were very wealthy and powerful, and then the rest of us were uh, peasants for the most part. And uh, so you had that going on. And on top of that, you had a really sad situation happening in, uh, in their religious system uh, because it had this kind of what I would just describe as a very kind of pious, mean spirit about it. Uh, you had a small group of people who were really committed to demonstrating how much better they were than everyone else, and that was sort of the religious system. Uh, and so Jesus is here, and he sees this group of people. They start to follow him as he's teaching. He's healing people. Some people think he's going to overthrow the Romans. Some people he's going to think he's going to restore Israel to wealth and prosperity. Some people think he's going to undo the religious system, and so they're following him looking for relief. That, that's why the people are following him. And Jesus looks out and he sees the crowd. He probably has all kinds of emotions, but you know what his prevailing emotion was? If you don't love Jesus already, this will make you love him. His prevailing emotion was compassion. Matthew tells us that when Jesus looked out at the crowds, he had compassion on them. Uh, that's the kind of person I hope that I grow into someday. It's pretty awesome. Uh, If you didn't have a reason to follow Jesus before, that in and of itself is a good reason. But He sees the people, He has compassion on them, and He's teaching them here in Matthew 6. And this is what He says in verse 25. He says, "I tell you, do not worry about your life." Well, that's something. That's I mean, why didn't I think of that? Don't worry about your life. He sees the stress and all that's happening. He says, "Don't worry about your life." Don't worry about what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? He sees their struggle and he begins by telling them, don't worry. Don't worry. First things first, don't worry. You don't need to worry. And perhaps if you drop yourself there in that conversation, uh, you might be inclined to sort of raise a brow at that. That might be kind of difficult to swallow. There you are in the situation. and Jesus is saying, don't worry. Don't worry about what's happening. And then he tells the people this interesting story. He says, hey, look up there in that tree. You see that bird up there? Paraphrasing, of course. But he calls attention to to the bird in the tree. He says, you know, uh, what's interesting about that bird is that it doesn't look worried about anything. And you're probably thinking, uh, I didn't come here to talk about the birds. I came here because there's Roman soldiers camped outside my house. I was hoping you might do something about that. And Jesus says, you know, that bird doesn't have like any wrinkles on his forehead or like stress eating, Netflix binge watching. Uh, I've mentioned that a few times. Like I might need to take a look in the mirror and consider, uh, consider <laughs> my, my issue there. Uh, but he says, hey, the bird isn't worried. It's just a bird. It's just up there in the tree, just you know, doing bird stuff, and you might assume, based on the fact that it seems content that it has, like, a lifetime supply of bird seed somewhere that we don't know about, uh, or, you know, like a debt-free nest, so, and another one in Arizona where it goes for the winter, maybe a couple rental nests, you would assume that this bird had everything all stored up and secured, but actually, it's just a bird. If, if it doesn't go find its next meal, it will die, and yet... Not worried. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus calls attention to the fact that they're worried about so many other things. And he says, but this bird is just a bird. And he's not, he's not worried. Just happy to be, to be up there. And he says, you know, this little guy, he knows something that you may have forgotten. That I may have forgotten. He understands that the father is good. The father is good. The father loves to provide for his children. And so the bird, he's just a bird. And Jesus turns to the people and he says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And Jesus makes the connection between God's love and God's provision. And it's such an easy thing for us to just read that story and be like, yeah, yeah, but I got this thing going on. But Jesus is telling this story, and he speaks in parables for a specific reason. He speaks in parables so that any of us could come along, pick up the parable, and apply it to our life. That's why he doesn't always just speak to a person's specific situation. He speaks in parable. He's saying the same thing to you. The bird's not worried. You don't need to worry. You're more valuable. But Jesus is really smart. He knows that there will be people like my wife, Brandy, who hate birds, uh, they don't want anything to do with birds. They don't want to be close to birds, and this story is not going to work. And so he calls attention to the flowers, and he says, hey, look at, look at those flowers. Aren't they incredible? I mean, is it, isn't it amazing that the sun comes out and they just spread out their petals toward the sky? Isn't it, isn't it incredible how God just makes the rain fall and the sun to shine? And they just, they just do what flowers do. They're not, even, they're not even worried about it. They just display their beauty because that's what they're made for. And God has a repeated pattern of meeting the flower's needs, and the flower really isn't even designed to worry about it. And the truth is, neither are you, neither am I. We're not designed to worry about it. We're designed to trust God. So in verse 30, Jesus says to them, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And I have this tendency to read that last part, you of little faith, as sort of uh, derogatory, like a negative, you know, like he's making an accusation to them of having such little faith. But I think what he's actually doing is calling attention to God's glory. He's saying, you know, even that little sliver of faith that you might have, even that, guess what? God will take that. God wants to provide for you. Even though you just have a little bit of faith, you're so much more valuable than the grass, And I think the principle is pretty simple. God takes care of even the flowers. How much more will he take care of his children? How much more would he love to do that? And it's an easy analogy to understand, uh, especially if you have kids of your own or you have other kids in your life that you care about, how far would you go to ensure their well-being? I'm guessing pretty far. And I think that's the point that Jesus is making. I think that's why he uses the verbiage, father and children, So he concludes this this lesson in verse 31. He says, So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The Father knows your needs, but he he goes a step beyond that, because he doesn't just know your needs. He actually delights in providing your needs. Unfortunately, it doesn't say that he knows your wants, because uh, that's a much longer list for me. But here's one of the things that's kind of hard to uh, get my head around, but it's, it's an obvious truth, is that God's not paralyzed by the immediate situation, uh, what I kind of view as an immediate need in my life. God has a much longer range view, and sometimes God withholds the things I want because he knows what I need because he has a longer-range view. But Jesus says you don't have to worry because God knows everything that you need. And sometimes, depending on, on where you're at, you might actually wrestle with the idea that the God of the universe, the God that's that big, cares about my needs. Some of us will, you know, wander around uh, with maybe like a, an oversized sense of self-belief and, be, and we'll think, oh, of course God cares about what I need. I'm me, um, But some people really struggle with this idea that would God really care about what I need? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, he does. But why? Why would God be concerned about your needs? Because there's an unmistakable connection between love and provision. So let's put some legs on this. Let me ask you an honest question. Do we do that here? We do honest questions? What is it? It's rhetorical, you don't have to shout at me uh, because I know this is a big shouting crowd. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, Angie. That was like a, you really meant that laugh right there. Uh, What are you worried about? Now, if you're like me, I'm not really a worrier. I'm not a person who is generally real apprehensive about things. Like, yeah, it might go sideways, but it'll work out because life works out. Uh, I'm not necessarily a worrier, but I do get to the spot where, like, the wheels in my head are just going 1,000 miles an hour, you know, I'm thinking of, like, all the potential outcomes and, you know, how to mitigate all of those, and, and I get to the point, it's sort of my own brand of worry, where I just can't turn it off, so I Netflix binge watch, apparently. Uh, apparently, that's my mechanism. Uh, so, that's kind of how I deal with it, and some people, you know, you're more of an out loud processor, right? Like, everyone knows that the sky is falling uh, for you. We're all, we're all kind of different in that way, but what is it that you worry about? What is it that gets the bulk of your thought life? You know, what are the things It could be? It could be business, it could be financial, it could be relational, it could be out there in the future someday. What if I'm not prepared for this? What if my kids do that? What if this doesn't work out or that work doesn't work out? What is it that you're worried about? Paul sets an example for us for how we should deal with that. And you're not going to like it because it requires some action on our part, um, But he teaches us in really expressed terms how to deal with this in his letter to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. This isn't just a one-off. Peter expresses the same sentiment in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast your cares on God. This is what you should do with your cares. Let God have them. I would love to give you a brilliant new exegesis or incredible interpretation of those two verses, but there isn't one that says what it says. It says, don't worry, but rather talk to God about it. If you want to know what your, your biblical course of action is, what does God want you to do with this thing that you're worried about? He wants you to not worry about it. Talk to him about it. It's a pretty, it's a pretty clear instruction. So, so if you're thinking, okay, how do I take... This, uh, this parable Jesus, the birds and the flowers and don't worry about your life. How do I apply that? What do I do with it? Don't worry. Talk to God about it instead. And when you start to worry about it, talk to God about it instead. That's, that's the pattern that is really clearly communicated to us in the scripture. Now, we might say something like, well, yeah, but my situation requires immediate action. So I can't just not worry about it, uh, and that that might be true. Maybe it does require immediate action. But did you know that when Paul wrote this verse, he was in prison, and that he had been beaten simply for declaring that Jesus is the Savior? Uh, that he'd been he'd been shipwrecked. He'd actually been in prison several times. Uh, he'd been homeless. He'd been in all kinds of really horrible circumstances, and yet he saw God, God provide miraculously. For his needs, Paul's enduring some pretty difficult circumstances, and he's saying, "Don't worry about anything." I don't, I don't know about you, but when I'm in a bad situation, my mind and my heart say, "Worry about everything." Uh, that that's sort of my default reaction. But here's Paul in this horrible situation, in these hard times, and he's saying, "Don't worry about anything. Talk to God about everything." And so he says in verse 19 later on in the chapter, kind of the concluding statement, he says, In this same way, the God who takes care of me will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ. Which needs? All of them. Uh, you have some very specific needs in your life, but Paul says God will supply all of our needs according to his riches. Uh, to quote Brian Cluth, as I did last week, God's not interested in our greeds, but he's definitely interested in our needs. And his promise is to supply for those. So, you know, it's easy to really focus on kind of material things. But when we dig down, I think, I think we all have more important needs that we're aware of. Uh, there's things in all of our lives that are more important than material needs. Uh, you know, Financial stuff will sort of come and go, but if you dig deeper, uh, there's other things we're worried about, things like the condition of a particular relationship in your life or maybe several relationships, Uh, the well-being of our kids as we're trying to shepherd them into a big world. I think that's a burden a lot of people are are carrying. Uh, Some of the ventures that we tie our self-worth to, it might be a business or an organization or um, a ministry, you know, we tie our self-worth to those things. Maybe even some of the losses that we've experienced or anticipate coming in life. Those are just some of the significant things that we worry about. And there's all kinds of ways to try and say, don't worry about it. Um, But when I try to comprehend the Father's love, there's a handful of verses in the Bible that come to mind. But I want to leave you with just one of these. um, That really, as I roll it around in my head, makes all the difference in the world to me. It's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 8. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Have you, have you really thought that through, that while I was still offensive to God, far from God, that's when he sent his son to die for me? Not, not when I cleaned up, not when I got it right, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us because this is what happens as a father, and you don't have to be a father to get your head around this. When your children are in trouble, you take action, and that's exactly what God has done for you. Really, the story of the father's love is about Jesus and him sending his only son to die for you. So I'm going to ask Pastor Rick to come up. He's going he's to lead us in communion, and then we'll, uh, we'll close out our day.